you have a Bible or if you'd like to grab one of the Pew Bibles to follow along, you can turn to John chapter 17 for our New Testament reading this morning. This most remarkable prayer from our Lord, preserved for us in John's Gospel. We'll read John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. I'll invite you to lend your attention, for this is the very word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. find Jonah, you go one book forward. If 
find Nahum, you go one book backwards. You find yourself in Micah. Mm. We'll read chapter 1, verses 8 through 16, which is the end of the chapter. This is the very word of God. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Laafra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'an, Za'anan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marot wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin for the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The houses of Achzib shall be deceitful to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabits, inhabitants of Marashah, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald, cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our God, your word is a light and a lamp. And this, mysteriously so, when the portrait that it sets forth is one of great darkness. For it is a weighty word. And this also declares your excellencies. For you speak the truth, you call a thing by its proper name. And the reality of sin and your righteous judgment upon sin is a weighty thing. And so we ask that you would properly posture our hearts before this word, that we, we might receive from this word which went forth of old instruction concerning the tendencies of our heart, our sin with which we continue to wrestle, and the excellencies of your provision in the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore eternal judgment in our stead, though it is what our sins deserve. Give us a heart to understand these things properly, that we might 
yield that which is appropriate before you as your people. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in fifth grade, my aunt died of cancer. I was young, but I still remember the solemn and weighty air attending the day that she died and the days that followed. All of my aunts and uncles whom I loved, who were always so cheerful and lovely, they gathered in quiet sadness in the face of that which was tragic and untimely death and the air of mourning which filled everyone's hearts. The night before the funeral, I had a dream. I still remember this to this day. In the dream, we were at the funeral, and I couldn't stop laughing. It was uncontrollable. One of those childish fits that doesn't make any sense. And even in the dream, I remember not knowing why I was laughing. Not knowing what was causing it, and being helpless to stop it. There was a palpable sense, even as a fifth grader, in my heart, knowing that I shouldn't have been laughing, but every effort that I extended to stop it was in vain. I was troubled by my dream, even as a fifth grader. Even in fifth grade, I felt the unseemliness of it. It was inappropriate. It was disrespectful. It was wrong to act in such a way in the face of such an objectively mournful, sad, and weighty event. Micah 1, 8 through 16 is a funeral. And that's sad enough in and of itself. But even sadder is everyone's laughing. Or maybe simply ignoring the fact that there is a funeral. And so God sends his prophet Micah on a tour of intense grief as an attempt to align God's people's hearts and minds to the weight of what was coming upon them, to the heinousness of their sin, to the heinousness of their callous hearts refusing to turn from sin, and the terrible truth of God's coming judgment upon their sin. Scripture speaks of the world being asleep or drunk. And both of those pictures present the same thing. People who are oblivious to the reality of things. People who are oblivious to the truth of sin and the dire fact that God's wrath is coming upon sinners. But Micah's not addressing the world. Micah's addressing the church. And while we're in a different age than God's people of old, Paul says that we've come to maturity in the age of the gospel, we still wrestle with the same fleshly inclinations, don't we? The flesh constantly tempts us to abandon trust in God's promises 
which sets before us the unseen things by which we are to live in faith. Flesh would tempt us to abandon trust in those promises for a false confidence in the seen things, a false trust and dependence in the things of this world. And in trading trust in the promises of God for trust in the things of this world, the sad reality that unfolds is hearts become less and less sensitive to the things of God, less and less sensitive to that unseen register, and more and more drawn to the seen things, more and more devoted to that which the flesh craves. And so God places Micah before us as a man of sorrows. And in this, he anticipates the man of sorrows, the Lord Jesus Christ, who wept, who looked upon the sad state of the world and cried because of the reality of sin and death. And yet he didn't come just to lament. He came to act. He came to bear in himself the incurable wound that is so lamentable. To bear it in our stead. And to teach us and lead us in the truth that he and he alone is the object of our confidence, our trust, our true delight. For in him and in him alone, Mourning turns into joy. So we can consider this morning. First, there's no place for laughter at a funeral. Second, sin destroys home. And third, the call to join in mourning. First, no place for laughter. Look at verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Sir Gawain had many faults. He was one of the foremost of King Arthur's knights, but he was also notoriously wild and reckless. He even killed a woman which is unthinkable according to the code of chivalry. But if there was anything redeemable in this wild night, it was his loyalty to his family and her honor. There was no delight to be had when ruin or difficulty came upon any of those bearing the same family name as Sir Gawain. How do we respond when disaster comes upon those who bear the Christian name, even if it's by their own doing? How do we react when those in the household stumble, even when it's due to sin? Make no mistake, this disaster comes from the Lord. Verse 12 states that plainly. Disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. It was Sennacherib who destroyed Judah. It was Sennacherib who besieged Jerusalem and caged up Hezekiah. But he was only God's instrument. 
This disaster had come down from the Lord. So what would you expect from Micah, the Lord's man? Some variation of, you had it coming. Some variation of, I told you so. But what do we get? Lament. Wailing. Nakedness. Earnest grief. You get the language of mourning infused with a wild, animal-like intensity. Howling and groaning like strange beasts in a desert haunt. used to hear the coyotes when I lived in California sing their haunting song at night. Micah evokes a similar image here using jackals and strange birds yielding a guttural cry. Over what? What fills his lungs and his body with that soul-aching grief that we only know from time to time in this life? Praise be to God. Verse 9, her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, Jerusalem. He weeps for an incurable wound. What is the incurable wound? The incurable wound is God's judgment blow against Judah's sin. Jeremiah uses the exact same language in Jeremiah 30. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound. No healing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy. The punishment of a merciless foe. Because your guilt is great because your sins are flagrant. The incurable wound is God's blow against their sin, and Micah announces that blow, but doesn't say, I told you so, or you had it coming. He announces it with a howling lament. And what's more profound still, Micah is acting as God's man. These are God's words, ultimately not Micah's. What was a prophet? A prophet is God's representative to his people. You might say he's the face of God to his people. Micah incarnates the mystery of God's grief at the judgment blow he himself deals to his people. Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. There's no pleasure on display here. This is pure grief. Now if there's a mystery in that, let it be. Let the mystery stand. It's no different from the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ weeping and howling over the hardness of heart on display in his people. In Jerusalem, in the fullness of time. But it raises an uncomfortable question for us. How does your heart respond when those bearing the name of Christian stumble and fall? When ill comes upon the household of God, even by their own doing? There was a recent popular podcast about the rise and fall of a prominent evangelical church 
How many Christians devoured that with unseemly and grotesque relish? Were you one of them? Isn't that just one example of many? Of these days where the church's dirty laundry is aired for all to see and Christians clamor towards the spectacle like everyone else just to get in there. I always knew it. I told you so. I feel a little better about myself now. Make no mistake. The prophet calls sin, sin. We're not talking about that. Nor are we talking about trying to keep sin hidden, which is public in nature. Micah is roving about naked and howling through the Judean countryside. This is very public. (laughs) We're talking about the sinful tendency of our hearts to take delight in the disaster that comes upon other Christians and how wrong that is. It's as wrong as a fifth grader laughing hysterically at a funeral. It's shameful. The prophet's posture of sincere mourning over God's heavy hand upon his people, a posture which mysteriously reflects God's own posture, puts our fleshly tendency to delight in the shame coming upon other Christians to shame, and rightfully so. Because the true reality of sin and the disasters that it brings about is weighty and it demands a heart postured appropriately. So we can consider second, sin makes home a nightmare. Look at verses 10 through 15. Micah tours the Judean countryside, moving from town to town. And everywhere he goes, there is a word of utter heartbreak, utter destruction. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey experiences a different version of his beloved home, Bedford Falls. All the places he visits with Clarence should have been familiar. They should have been places of comfort, but they had suddenly and strangely transformed into a nightmare imposters existing where friends should have been, curses existing where blessing previously resided. And that's a similar effect to what Micah here is doing as he embarks upon this tour of grief and transforms a familiar Judean countryside into a nightmare for his hearers as he seeks to press upon their hearts the devastating reality sin and its utterly destructive consequences. Now, unfortunately, the English just doesn't capture what Micah is doing here. The Hebrew is brilliant. Each place name actually becomes the dark fate awaiting the beloved cities and indeed the land of Judah as a whole. So, for instance, he says, in Bet Laafra, Roll yourselves in the dust. Afra is from the Hebrew word for dust. So Micah takes the name of the town, house to the dust, and transforms it into a curse. Transforms it into the dark fate. You will roll yourself in the dust. A posture of defeat. A posture of death and destruction. And so... 
in this way, he takes what is familiar, he takes home, and he makes it strange and indeed terrible, which is exactly what sin does. It takes that which is good and lovely and makes it terrible, a destructive reality. But the town names becoming doom also indict God's people for where they have placed their delight, where they have placed their confidence. Notice that verse 16 invites us to hear the oracles this way. Micah says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Now that's a layered phrase, the children of your delight. But one layer is these towns are the children of Jerusalem's delight. And so in them we glimpse what God's people are delighting in. What God's people have taken unto themselves as their source of comfort, confidence, and security. Look at verse 11. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. Now the town name Shafir comes from the Hebrew word that means beautiful, which is here poetically reversed in their fate. You beautiful ones cross over naked and ashamed. You who delight in external, external appearances, the truth of what you really are shall be set forth. Nakedness, shame. For true beauty consists in righteousness and holiness. True beauty consists in virtue. Or as scripture puts it, beauty is vain, charm is deceitful. But the one who fears the Lord is praiseworthy. Now we're constantly tempted to look upon external appearances only, aren't we? Both in ourselves and in others. We are quick to associate with those who are lovely in the eyes of the flesh, who are seemly in the eyes of the flesh. James indicts the church for this very thing. Those who look well, you welcome and give the places of highest honors. Those who don't look well, they don't receive your attention. Or regarding our own understanding of our external experiences. We content ourselves with thinking that as long as somebody has the impression that I am good, as long as somebody has the impression that I am righteous, then I am content. As long as that person has the impression that I am praiseworthy. And in this we neglect the truth, the substance, the inside. And in both of these tendencies of the heart, we see that we are drawn to place our confidence in external appearances, neglecting the substance for the form, just as they are. We're quick to forget that our Lord and Savior had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. But has anyone lovelier ever walked this earth? The Lord who associated with the lowly, those who had nothing to commend themselves in the eyes of the world. And he said, go and do likewise. But it's also the love of wealth that is indicted. Look at verse 14. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. 
The houses of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. Archaeology, frequently a bane of many a grad student's existence, uh, here is helpful. Because <laughs> archaeology has uncovered in this region of Judah all manner of jug, giant pottery fragment with the phrase belonging to the king inscribed on the handle. This region would have been one of financial income for the royal house. And what does Micah pronounce upon these areas of economic income? One of them will be given away as dowry. Morasheth Gath will be given as a parting gift, given as dowry to the terrible husband who's coming, Sennacherib. And Achzib, whose name means deceit, Achzib, related to the Hebrew word deceit, will finally show her true colors, as the deceitful wealth obtained from her avails them nothing in the day of crisis. When Sir Lancelot left Elaine with their newborn baby, Elaine's heart yearned for Lancelot. He had left her with a child, a castle, and more gold than she could comprehend. But it meant nothing to her as she watched the man that she loved ride away, not knowing if or when she would ever see him again. She experienced vividly that truth that we forget all so often, that in the final analysis, money avails for very little. Earthly wealth does not serve as a balm for the soul. Mark how easy it is for wealth to become the source of our confidence, the object of our security. Aren't we tempted unto great anxiety when we feel we don't have enough wealth? <laughs> Aren't we tempted to grow insensitive towards the needs of others when we have an abundance of wealth? Doesn't the Lord invite us to consider the lilies and the sparrows and how the God who owns all things promises to supply us with our material needs because we are more precious than flowers and sparrows, I will care for you. Don't be anxious. Your confidence isn't in stuff. Your confidence is that you belong to me, and I'll give you exactly what you need. We're constantly tempted to forget Paul's sober instruction. You brought nothing into this world. You can take nothing out of this world. But the heart of the oracle is actually verse 13. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. The Bible is so cool. This is brilliant, because it opens with tell it not in Gath, which is an allusion to David's lament for Saul. Let it not be told in Gath, for the prince has fallen. And now he says, Lachish is indicted because she was the beginning of sin for the house of Zion. Lachish was renowned for her horses and chariots. There's even a relief in Sennacherib's uh, palace in Nineveh depicting him conquering Lachish and taking these horses. So internationally renowned was Lachish 
for the production of this war engine. What was Israel's great sin in identifying Saul as the king that they wanted? Oh, he was taller than everybody else. Here was a warrior like the warriors of the nations. Here was an emblem of true power. Of course, under such a king will flourish. Who killed Goliath? Whose armor was despised on the day of battle? Where was the warrior when the Philistine was calling out someone to fight him? Hiding. What did his weapons do? Nothing. David went to him with a stone and a sling. Laish here produced incredibly efficient engines of war. And what have they become? He says, harness the horse to the chariot. These aren't war horses. These are the swiftest horses you can imagine. So they're not war engines here. They're escape wagons. He says, run. You're not going to be able to stand in the face of what's coming. We're tempted to put our confidence in physical power, earthly might. We console ourselves with thinking we have the strongest standing army in the world. No one will ever be able to hurt us. Order will always stand. Micah says the true concern ought to be with sin and God's judgment against sin. What can the strongest armies on earth do against such a day? What can the mightiest chariots and steeds do to avail in the day of wrath? But the one who has peace with his God, well, that one can stand even though the mountains are tossed into the heart of the sea, as even Micah does in the face of the oncoming day of wrath, declaring the true word of God, a pillar that cannot be shaken. Israel here is indicted for forsaking the glory of God for external appearances, the riches of God for this world's goods, the only refuge and strength for the appearance of strength in standing armies. And as we see God's people of old go this way, we are called to consider how we are tempted to misplace our confidence in these deceitful strongholds. And mark this well. It is not a question of if we are tempted to put our confidence in these things. We most certainly are. Every last one of us, down to a man, down to a woman, we are all tempted to put our confidence in these things, to freight these things with our ultimate security, to sleep well at night with whatever notion of what we need in place in the terms of these three heads. So the question is not if we're tempted in this direction. The question is how. How the particular temptation is manifesting itself to you as individuals and to us as the corporate people of God. The household of faith. And what should have been their object of confidence? What should have been the object of their delight? The text implies the plain answer. God's covenant and his promises. The whole of this section is presented in terms of two great tragedies, a reverse conquest as a conqueror comes and takes 
that which God had given his people in the fall of the house of David. The two great promises to Abraham. I will be God to you. You will be my people. This is your land. To David, a descendant from your line will always sit upon your throne. Those two promises and the God who made them were the unequivocal and sole object of his people's trust. At least it should have been. And so when they weren't, God's fatherly hand comes upon them to show them what they did not have the eyes to see. And the truth of that, the truth of God's corrective hand coming down upon all of our tendencies to misplace our trust, is that which God uses to redirect us, to point us, to orient ourselves to our great, constant, and ultimate need, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him and in him alone is the uncurable wound of sin and judgment cured. And in him and in him alone are we given the strength to delight in the unseen riches which are ours, which will one day become visible, the truth of which sustains us as the seen things encroach upon us and even turn against us. So we can consider last, mourning leads to joy. Verse 16, make yourselves bald, cut your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bold as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the terrible climax. This is the dark pinnacle of what Micah has been driving at. And Micah calls Jerusalem to join him in his lament. And the terrible fate which has gone unspoken up until this point finally gets voiced. Your children are going into exile. Queen Morgoz was a dreadful woman, yet even King Arthur is able to look upon her with pity when he considers that all her children have been effectively taken from her and transferred into his kingdom. Jerusalem here is presented as a dreadful woman, reduced to helplessness as she is forced to watch as her children are taken from her. Now, on one level, these children of delight are the towns Sennacherib destroyed. But on another, more personal, more intimate level, this is the forcible removal of literal children from parents into exile. Notice how the terrible word goes unspoken until the very end. It's the final phrase ringing as a fate worse than death. Your children go into exile away from you. They're taken from you, and you are forced to watch. And even beyond the personal heartbreak of having one's children forcibly taken away, there is a more profound deprivation going on here. Because the removal of children is the removal of a future. And this is what sin does. It destroys the future. It sets destruction on display as the inevitable end of the course of destruction. The removal here of a generation extinguishes hope. It extinguishes the future. And it is a heartbreaking reality to consider. 
And it is even more terrible to consider that this is God's justice. That it is right and fair for him to do this. And so then we see Micah's earlier posture in a more significant light. In verse 8, the posture of the prophet is to walk around barefoot and naked. That's how he's going about. This tour of grief takes place with Micah barefoot and naked. That's not just a mourning ritual. That's the prophet's body becoming a canvas upon which the fate of his people is written. For one went into exile naked and barefoot and ashamed. In a way, Micah here becomes the incurable wound. Micah becomes the curse. Now for the prophet, this was to press the reality of God's coming judgment upon his fellow countrymen. They were to look upon the naked and shamed prophet and know this was the work of their hands. This was God's justice distributed to them in their heinous lives before God, forsaking the true and living God for these so-called objects of confidence. And in this way, the prophet calls them to mourn. And it's a language that reminds us very much of Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Zechariah pictures one with an incurable wound who is strangely presented as the Lord himself. And he envisions a day when grace and mercy will be poured out upon God's people such that they finally see, they finally glimpse the horror of their sins and they finally see the steadfast love of the Lord who put forth himself to bear the incurable wound in their stead, to open their eyes to the destructive tendencies of the heart, which ever only put confidence in the things that can be seen and lead them gently with eyes finally unveiled to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ the one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen, the one in whom the riches and pleasures of God himself are opened to all who come to this one who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquity. By his wound, our incurable wound is healed. The day of darkness that Micah envisioned only finds its resolution in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until the third day, when three days of a futureless world, under the sin and judgment that was coming upon sin, opened up to a glorious morning where true righteousness dawned and the riches of God were established unto his people, such that all of our wandering ways 
all of our tendencies to delight in the things of the flesh will ultimately be brought unto nothing as God confirms for himself a people in the Lord Jesus Christ whom he is teaching to delight in him and in him alone. Come what may. Let's pray. Father, grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Grant us a heart that postures itself in accord with truth as your spirit ministers to us, opening our eyes to our sinful tendencies and placing us at awe, in awe of your unfathomable mercy, the riches of your grace and setting forth the Lord Jesus Christ, wounded in our stead, raised for our life, leading us forth in a life of peace, righteousness, and hope. May these things become the reality by which we walk, though they remain unseen and taken by faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.